Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Beat the Press podcast, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. Back from an audition with his local pub's band, it's my co-host Luke Chiviton. <laughs> Hi John, uh, very much a failed audition unfortunately. Uh, turns out I was unable to bring Gareth Ainsworth levels of cool to my rendition of The Wanderer. I mean that's understandable isn't it? Well I'm the type of guy Well, I won't hold it against him, uh, especially as a QPR fan. Joe, I actually think Ainsworth was responsible for probably two of the best goals I've ever seen live. Uh, He scored two absolute worldies back-to-back in the same match against Rushton Diamonds. Well worth a watch. Yeah, I'll admit, I actually looked them up and they're pretty special, as is Ian Holloway's reaction to the goals. Uh, so we'll put a link to to that in the in the in the pod show notes. Uh, but if you haven't already guessed from that that late introduction, there's a very there's very much a Wicker Wanderers theme to the show this week. Um, as we welcomed Ainsworth's assistant manager Richard Dobson for a chat uh, about Wickham's promotion story and the work that he did in his previous role as head of the club's youth program. Some of you might remember our conversation with sports psychologist Dr. Misha Jervis in a, a previous episode of the pod. Uh, she worked with Richard on that youth program and and it was something that was really quite unique in terms of its approach to providing young players with sort of considerable psychological support as part of their development as players yeah i think i think it's fair to say that they were considered trailblazers in this respect by by the fa uh, and actually across the rest of europe as well and the academy was was a huge success so it produced uh you know produced a host of talented players that that not only helped wickham reach the championship this season but also created much needed financial returns for uh, you know relatively small club through through player sales yeah and, and, and John uh, you wrote a really interesting piece for the Beat the Press website uh, on our interview with Richard which seemed to be really well received in terms of recognising what the club had done there in fact I think I read one of the tweets that uh, that said Richard Dobson is one of the most important people at the club right now um, which just gives you some indication of sort of his standing with the fans at Wickham yeah and I, I wouldn't disagree with that given kind of how t- articulately he, he described the work that had been done in, in the Wickham Academy uh, and the reason for kind of persevering with with this approach not to mention just kind of how, how passionate and committed he is to the club and the players he was involved in you know bringing through so here's our conversation with Richard who started off by talking about his experience of coaching Wickham's academy players and how he set up the club's psychology program my role initially was centre of excellence manager and uh, very quickly became youth team manager and then ended up being head of youth, which was, you know, equivalent of academy director now. Um, so one of the things that I'd always uh, been quite insistent on was that football had this um, support mechanism for the physical side of the game. You know, sports scientists had, had become very popular and every every player in an academy had access to a sports scientist. Obviously, the technical and tactical side were done by the coaches. But I, re- I had a real bugbear about the fact that no one was ever working on the mind. And... Um, Uh, When I first started coaching, one of the early courses that I went on with the FA was the FA psychology course. It was the first ever level one. And and we were the guinea pigs, the first 25 coaches to to go on it. And um, and they ended up making five levels, which uh, became the the FA diploma. And I was one of the first, I'm going to say 25 coaches in the world because we had a Norwegian national 
team psychologist on it. We had an Argentinian guy on it. But we were the first 25, um, that cohort, to come through all five levels uh, and get this um, psychology diploma. Um, and it just really sparked, sparked me up, um, got me thinking about the importance of psychology within team settings, within um, individuals. Uh, and on that course, I was lucky enough to meet Misha Jervis, who you, you've spoken with. And I said to her, I shared this vision with her, and I said, look, one of the things I really want to do is I want to have a psychologist working with every kid in, in the academy. Um, I think it's really important. Um, no one's doing it, and um, I don't understand why no one's doing it. So so she said, okay, well, we can make this happen. Um, I work at Bruno University. We're half an hour away from Wickham. Um, let's get together and, and have a chat. And literally within two weeks, we'd interviewed uh, five or six um, psychs. Misha headed up the program uh, from the psychology, psychological side. Uh, I worked closely with her to integrate it into our academy program. And um, within two weeks, we got this program up and running. And it was it was the best decision that I ever made when I was running that, that youth program, um, because I think it, it gave us the, the biggest advantages uh, in terms of helping the players come through the system and, and be prepared for first team football at the end of it. Was that the main benefit that, that convinced you of the worth of investing in that then, Richard? Was it about kind of helping the kids along that journey from kind of the academy to the first team? Because it's, it's quite a big jump to make. You, you must have been convinced that there was, there was some benefit to, to putting all that effort in. Yes. I, I mean, ultimately, the aim of an, uh, an academy is to, to put players in your first team. But um, I'd be lying if I said that that was the sole reason for it. Uh, I've seen football um, chew chew up and spit out far too many kids. Uh, it, it's soul destroying for some of these kids when they're released from academies or, or the way that they're treated within them. And I wanted a, um, a method of support for those kids so that they're in a really safe environment to thrive and flourish and if they didn't quite make it as a professional footballer, they'd received a, a solid grounding um, from, you know, it's life experiences that we were trying to give them and, and, and help them cope with it. So, you know, you look at someone like Jordan Ibe, who came into our first team at 15, and he was getting one-on-one -on -one psychological support to prepare him for that transition as a 15-year-old of going into men's football uh, and we protected him. We kept him away from the press. You know, he left it at a different uh, exit after games so that he didn't get hounded by people. Um, we had his mum working with the psychologist, with Misha, one-to-one -one, um, to prepare her for what he was going on to because we knew it was only a matter of time before we lost him to a big club. And we wanted to help with that transition as a young player to go into what was going to be, you know, a huge club and all of a sudden that magnifying glass that he was going to be caught under. So there was certainly support for people that were going into the first team at that end. But there's another a great story, and this is one of many. Um, we had a young lad who suffered with a, a problem called tics. So what this was, was involuntary t uh, twitches um, when he started to feel stressed or under pressure. Uh, and with this lad, it was his arms. His arms would move involuntary. Um, so what happened is uh, the other boys started to twig onto it because when he came into the uh, academy football you know he was a little bit nervous before games he'd, he'd have these twitches the other boys saw it and there was a little bit of mickey taking and his mum and dad came and said look we, we he's got a bit of a problem we, we want to take him out because it's you know he's, he's it's exacerbated you know when he's within this environment um and so we said to, to his mum and dad look don't do anything hasty he's enjoying being here we really like him as a, a lad and as a player let's work with a psychologist and see what we can do so, so Misha studied it. She spoke to friends within, within her industry. 
And we started to work on his mindset in terms of understanding why this was happening. We spoke with the boys within the group and said, explain to them that this was the reason why his arms were moving as they did um, so that they understood it. And uh, it helped the family so much that in the end, their first choice of uh, method to deal with this um, problem wasn't their doctor, but was actually Misha, the psychologist at the football club. Um, It had such a profound effect on, on the lad dealing with it. So he never ended up leaving. He stayed within us, within the academy, because it suddenly became the safest place for him to, to go through these, these problems that he was dealing with and still enjoy being a, a footballer. And the fact that the other kids within that age group had also been told about it and why it was happening, they accepted it as a, OK, we understand this now. Um, you know, he's still the same lad he was before. So there was all sorts of little projects like that going on with individuals. Um, and when the, the club closed the academy, we lost so many of them little support stories um, that the club was able to give through Misha and her psychologists um, that didn't just relate to football, but related to other areas outside of football um, that these kids were getting within the football club. Richard, that's a really, really powerful story. Um, I mean, when we spoke to, to Misha, you know, she, she was saying to us that, you know, unfortunately, that, that there is a... Uh, there is some scepticism towards the, the role of psychology within within football, and I, I suppose you know that stories like that are, are, are kind of a good counter argument to that. How how did you how did you kind of deal with people that said, oh, you know, this this can't work, this won't work? Yeah, look, there's always going to be uh, scepticism, um, and it, particularly of the unknown. You know, people don't understand psychology fully. I, I was quite fortunate because I think as far as football coaches go. Um, I had a good understanding of psychology at that stage without professing to be an expert on it by any stretch of the imagination. But I'd gone through the courses. I'd worked on a, with a psychologist on my own personal development. So I knew the benefits that you could get. But for those people that hadn't been in that environment or with uh, or around psychologists, I can understand that there's a little bit of the unknown and, and people are always worried about the unknown. So I think that the big thing was in terms of helping them understand the benefits that they were going to get. Uh, and what we did within the, the I, I call it Academy Programme, it was you know, Centre of Excellence. Um, what we did within the Academy was um, we had a, what we called a triangle of influence. So we tried to work on um, the coaching staff, the players and the parents. Um, so what we did with the coaching staff is we would um, have a workshop with them. So every month we'd work on a different uh, psychological trait to try and help our kids uh, improve that area. So let's say it was resilience, for example. Um, we would have a workshop with all the coaching staff. Uh, the Sykes would, would put the workshop on. They would show them what resilience looks like in a sporting environment and how that we can integrate that into our, our training program uh, so that the, the, the coaches were educated into um, this is something that you can actually improve in your coaching um, and this is how we're going to help you do it. And then the psychologists would work alongside the, um, the coaches within the, the, the training program. So, for example, if they were working on finishing, you'd have a a coach stood there that was helping the player with his his technique. But if the player missed, the psychologist would be stood there and then talking to him about his mindset, how he refocuses once he's missed and how he feels after that. And just trying to reset the, the, you know, and and stop the disappointment of missing a shot or or whatever it might be. So so the players were then worked on within the the, the coaching session over a, a month. And then Misha would run uh, a workshop with the parents and this was it was invitation you didn't have to come there, were, there was no stipulation that you had to go to this as a parent but we opened it and said look if you want to understand what 
the kids are working on over the ne next month and how you can help um, then you know we're opening our doors and we're showing you and I think the first one she did about 40 of the parents turned up um, word of mouth soon got around and uh, by the end of it there was 80 to 100 turning up on a regular basis because Misha was saying to them this is what you're going to see in the training sessions over the next month this is uh, how we think you can help and support as a parent afterwards so these are the sort of questions that we'd like you to ask your children in the car on the way home instead of why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that and what went wrong in this you know these these are the questions that we'd like you to to ask that will stimulate some of the stuff that we've been working on in their thinking once they've left the sessions. So it was really a case of education with, with every area of support around that child um, and trying to bestow the the, um, the advantages of the psychology program. And I actually said to the, the coaches one, one stage, I'm committed to this and I will lose coaching staff rather than lose the psych psychology program. Um, that's how strongly I feel about it. So we need you to buy in. One of the other interesting things we did was we looked at the communication of the coaches. So what the psychologists did for, for one month was uh, look at who the psychologists were talking to in the session and what that communication was. And then we fed it back to them at the end of the month. And it was a really eye-opening part of the project. Um, what happened was that uh, the, the lads, if you think of the, the group as a ladder system, so the top player being at the top of the ladder and, and the weakest player in the group being at the bottom of the ladder, what was happening? is that the coaches were speaking 75% more to the players at the top end of the ladder, um, and 75% of that communication was positive. And at the bottom end of the ladder, 75% of that communication was actually negative towards them. So the coaches were actually almost shaping that ladder with the communication that they were giving in terms of giving confidence to the lads at the top end and draining confidence from the lads at the bottom end. And we, we fed that back to the coaches. And some of them were shocked. Some of them said, look, I want a psychologist with me the whole time telling me if I'm doing this because I don't want to be that person that's draining a kid's confidence or giving someone a better opportunity than the others because of my communication. And of course, there were one or two coaches that kind of knew that they were doing it and it was uncomfortable for them. But it was definitely eye opening and it changed the way that our coaches thought about the way that they coached along the way. That's amazing. I, ne I never would have considered, you know, when you see data like that, you, it's something you never would have thought about until you actually analyse it, is it? Um, so, so Richard, you, you sort of mentioned that you had to mobilise quite quickly and you sort of got, was it five psychologists on board very, very quickly after you kind of had the original idea? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a lot, I mean, for a top flight team, let alone, you know, a club operating at, at the level Wickham was. Um, did you have to kind of convince a lot of senior people at, you know, you know almost board level within the club to kind of, make that investment and, and kind of support that that idea that you had? Um, no, I, I always had real real good um, support from those above me at, at board level. They were always very pro to the youth system. And, and because of the players that were coming through at that time, I mean, Jordan I was was the, the, probably the most famous in terms of selling him on to Liverpool. But we had a number of players. Courtney House is now playing in the Premier League at Aston Villa. Josh Gowan and um, Matt Ingram. Uh, Charles Dunn, Kadeem Harris, you know, all players that have gone in to play at a real good level, you know, many of them championship now. So we had this this cohort at a very young age, Matty Phillips as well, don't want to forget him, he's just, he's just got promoted back into the Premier League. So they were very supportive of what we were doing. Um, and I think something that really helped uh, was about a year after I'd completed the, um, the Level 5 psychology course, I was invited as, as one of the members to go back and present what we'd done off the back of those psychology courses to the FA psychology department. 
and I fed back what we were doing and you know the work I was doing with Misha. And the head of FA psychology came to me afterwards and said, you do realise that's the biggest psycho- uh, psychology programme of any club in Europe? And I said to him, no, uh, you know, I didn't have any idea. I didn't ever think of it in that respect. And he said, look, it's innovative, it's groundbreaking. There's only Valencia that are doing anything on a similar scale. So uh, I just thought I'd let you know that. Um, so I obviously went back to the club and said, look, this is what the FA uh, have told us. And, and for them, it was great because, you know, Little Wickham Wanderers were doing something that was seen as ahead of the game with all the big clubs around and all the money that they've got to spend. Um, but I, I've got to be honest with you, it was never meant as a, you know, we never banged the gong about it. And no one's ever actually spoken to me um, about it as you guys are today. Um, it was something that was done because we felt it would be for the betterment of our players within our system. Uh, and looking back now, you know, it was an innovative programme. Um, but we've just never really spoken about it. And, and I guess it, it's great, you know, that the, the awareness of what we were doing um, can hopefully help other football clubs. And I know Misha's gone into to QPR and has rolled out a similar programme at QPR now because they'd seen what happened at Wickham and, and wanted to take that programme into QPR. Richard, the um, the academy obviously closed in, in 2012. And you know, I believe that in part that was due to, to budget constraints. How do you think promotion to the championship and, and obviously there'll, there'll be a financial boost there? How do you think that might might change things at academy level? The problem is once you close it, it's a hell of a job to start it up again from scratch. Um, for, to my mind, they, they, the club would have been far better off running a, a smaller programme, um, keeping the players within the system. So we lost a lot of players that are now doing well. Uh, other clubs, Matty Cash at Nottingham Forest, uh, Danny Loder at Reading, who's been an England youth international. You know, these were players that were all within our system at a younger age um, that we had really high hopes for. Um, we felt that they might be better than the ones that were coming into our first team at that present time. So so we lost a lot of, uh, of good players out of that system. Uh, and it was basically just, you know, the, the youth system cost £200,000 a year. There's £200,000 savings that we can make because the supporters trust didn't have the finances to do it at that stage, but it was devastating for the club and for the people within it. Um, to, to start it up again would be extremely difficult purely because the amount of money that's being spent at the top end now uh, within academies. I mean, we couldn't even compete with um, academy budgets. Uh, when you compare our first team budget, um, you know, that's the level that, that the big clubs are, are spending now. And it's peanuts for them to go and pick off the best players from other clubs um, and bring them into their programme. So you actually don't get the rewards that maybe you used to get from selling a player on. I would love to see it again. I think that it's uh, it really embeds the club in the heart of the community when so many young players from the local area are proud to pull on that shirt every weekend and represent their, their local professional club. I think it has far more, more benefits to the, the club than just to reduce a, a player every now and then into the first team. Um, and I, I certainly think it, it draws the community closer to the club. And, and, and as I say, there are families that, that know other families of players within the, an academy uh, system and they start to look out for the club. And you end up with this sort of wide ranging network of people that look out for the club for reasons other than the first team. So I would love to see it happen again. I, I don't think that it will be happening anytime soon, but we do have um, new American owners that have a vision for the club going forward. And one of the things that they want to start is a, a B team program, um, so that we can start to develop so eighteen to twenty one year olds of our own again, uh, and that's something certainly that I'm all for. 
And Richard, you, you talk about some of, you know, there's a lot of success stories from your academy. I mean, you, you mentioned Jordan Ide, Matt Phillips, people like that. One of the things uh, that was really interesting when we spoke to Misha was that she said even at QPR now, she's kind of got this program at the academy level. But then as soon as those players go into the first team, kind of the psychological support essentially drops off because it's not done the same at, at first team level. Did you ever speak to any of the people that came you know, after they'd moved on from your academy who were maybe used to you know, a slightly better provision of psychological support when they worked with you than, than what they found when they moved on? I haven't had that, that, um, that conversation with them and purely for the reason that um, what other clubs do is entirely down to them and, you know, it would be remiss of me to, to start judging other people uh, and the programmes that they, they have at their clubs. You know, every club is, is unique and individual and everybody has their own beliefs and values that they want to work around and, you know, I wouldn't judge anybody else's beliefs against ours. So um, I know that there are players out there that have continued to stay in touch with Misha when they've moved on. Um, they, they, they enjoyed the work that they did with her uh, and because she's they're not at our club, or, or she she comes in and, and helps me out quite a lot now with individuals in our first team. Um, she's been an absolute godsend for us. But you know she's not employed by our club, so people can pick up the phone and, and do some work with her uh, on an individual basis. And I know some of our boys work with her when she's in the club, but also have conversations with her away from the club. So you know there's always that access to to Misha. Um, if they need it and and you know I guess it's down to their clubs and, and where they are now whether they're happy for that support to happen um, you do get some managers that um, they kind of circle the wagons a little bit they don't want anybody else other than their own staff talking to their players and I'm never quite sure um, why that's the case because I would always try and involve anybody within our program that could help benefit the players um, but I guess you've all got to be singing from the same hymn sheet haven't you and uh, it's got to fit within your club's philosophy um, anybody that does work with the players so you know I, I do understand why some people circle the wagons to some extent but for me I would always do what's best for the players and, and what the players require. Richard you mentioned the kind of funding that's required you know in, in kind of Wickham's instance to um, initially to support the academy program um, yeah and that's potentially the kind of funding that, that, that might be required elsewhere how, how do you think football's current financial predicament with COVID-19 and all the fallout from that might affect investment in, in psychological support? Uh, unfortunately, I would say it's going to affect it quite considerably. Um, and the reason why is because for so many people, psychological support is a, a nice to have, not a must have in their eyes. Um, and in actual fact, it's the complete opposite at this moment in time because uh, the stresses of, of the, the coronavirus and what that's brought to families, not just within football, but outside of it as well. Um, if ever there's a need for psychological support, now is the time. So uh, when we were in lockdown, Misha was putting together videos, five minute videos uh, to support our players on the psychology of, of going through this lockdown period and the stresses of the coronavirus and the uncertainty of not knowing when we were going to be coming back to football uh, and every week she'd send it through to me. I would send it through to one of our senior players and he'd distribute that video out to the other players just to help them um, with the, the, the psychological means of, of dealing with that situation they're in because, you know, it's obviously unprecedented and, and our players have never been through it before. And I'm sure for a young lad who's desperate to, to finish the season off and hopefully you know, work towards promotion, to see that being taken away would have been quite hard for them especially as it dragged on and another week went past another week went past you obviously get the uncertainty and then all the stories of what might happen and might not so we just try to alleviate them fears 
through Misha and, and her psychological tools to help us. I know a number of the boys kept in contact with her throughout that period uh, and me and Misha spoke on a regular basis um, about how we can deal with it and what, what's going to happen when we come out of lockdown. You know, she's a wealth of knowledge and certainly someone that we can tap into um, to help the people around us. You know, she's worked with uh, Olympic athletes and gymnasts and, and footballers at, at the highest level. So why would we not use that resource? And Richard, given the amount of effort that you sort of, you know, invested as a club and personally in kind of the youth development system there, it must have been extra special to kind of see Anthony Stewart, you know, one of the last people to come off of that conveyor belt, uh, score the goal in the playoff final. That must have been, you know, even better than it could have been for you. Magical moment, magical. Um, Anthony came into us as a 15-year-old lad, um, very raw, lovely, lovely kid, uh, and he had a really tough time. So he was from South London. He lost his dad. I think when he was 16, he lost his dad. And, and that was obviously a traumatic experience for anyone. He then moved to Diggs in, in Wickham. So he was away from his family. Uh, I'm pretty sure that at the time he was sending money back from his, his wages to help his, his mum and support his mum uh, when he was with us. And uh, apprentices don't earn very much at the best of times. But for him, you know, that was important to support his family. So to watch him grow up, um, he, he saw the others move on. So, you know, he's very close with Kadeem and Jordan and he saw them move on to perceived bigger and better things. He had a go at that, went away for a year, ended up at Crew, who were a division above us. Didn't work out for him. And I picked the phone up at the end of the season and said, right, you've had a look. You thought the grass was greener. It's not. Get yourself back in. We'll get your career back on track. And he came back with his tail between his legs a little bit. Um, <laughs> but then has, has gone on to, to grow as a person. And, and he really understands now that with football, happiness and, and being in the right environment is sometimes more important than maybe chasing the money or um, trying to get up that ladder as quickly as you can um, and he's in a real secure environment for him and I keep saying to him he's, he should score more goals from set pieces so to get one at Wembley is just fantastic for him and um, I actually texted him a couple of days after the game just out of the blue and just said to him Look, I'm so proud of you um, you know watching you grow up into this person and, you know, big players produce big performances on the big occasions. And you've done that the other day and got a goal to boot. Can't tell you how proud I am of you at the moment. And um, it's funny because he's almost like like a son to me. I've known him for so long. I've actually known him longer than my own son um, and watch him grow up. That I, You know, I know him so, so intimately now. It's just wonderful to see him have a little bit of success like he is now and obviously going into to be a, a championship player for the first time in his career. Just sticking with the, the promotion, Richard, for a minute. You've um, you've managed alongside Gareth Ainsworth about eight years now, I think, which makes you the the longest serving management duo in England's top four divisions, I, I believe. How, how do you keep the relationship fresh after that length of time? Our former chairman calls me and Gaz yin and yang. So you've got Gaz, who's an extrovert. He, he's larger than life character, real charisma. I'm very different. I, I work in the shadows. I'm you know in the background. I don't court the cameras. Um, and so with, with Gaz, he's the face of the club and, and everybody knows Gaz. Uh, with me, I, I sit in the background and I just try and guide and, and, um, and help him and support him as best I can from behind because you know, I'm a predominantly visual learner and I like to sit in the background and watch and observe um, and then make my points kind of subtly. So you know, our, our relationship works because I think we cover a lot of different bases within the club. We, you know, Gaz, the, the, the extroverts, the, the Bayouac and Fenris, for example, uh, him and Gaz will probably be very close and, and in touch with each other's emotions, where the quieter ones um, will probably come to me and, and talk to me whenever they've got a problem. 
so we, we cover a, a lot of the, the personalities of the players between us but also we, we're really good friends and we do have a lot in common I know you know we're very different people but there's a lot in common behind us as well and our, our drive to succeed and the fact that we want to do things you know with, without having a, a bullying environment for example you know we're, re- we're really keen for our, our club to be a, a club where people can come and just be them and be themselves fully um, and I think that's drawn a lot of players to our club now because word of mouth has got out that we have got a, an environment that is I, I would put our environment up against anybody else in, in English football you know our culture is so strong um, that people are, are resonating with that and they want to come and play at a club where they can be themselves and, and enjoy their football and uh, we're, we're reaping the benefits of that with the improved standards of players that want to come to Wickham Wanderers now. Uh, Rich, I think that answer perfectly describes the uh, differences in your choice of footwear for the playoff final then between you and Gareth. <laughs> I'm not sure I could pull them off if I'm honest, yeah. <laughs> Has the elation of getting promoted fully sunk in yet or was it a case of kind of not really having time to think about it too much because you needed to get straight down to work to prepare for the turnaround for the new season? Um, well, that's it. I mean, we it's the biggest moment in our club's 133-year history and um, we haven't had a chance to really celebrate it or let it sink in because the new season's going to be on us before we even know it. So, it was funny at the final whistle because I turned to Gaz and we both looked at each other and both said at the same time, oh my God, what have we done? Um, we hadn't contemplated the thought that we might get promoted. We'd just been so process driven and concentrated on the process throughout that no one had actually thought what happens if we get to the end point and we've actually done it. And, um, uh, you know, the boys at Wembley, they, they were like, they'd regressed to little kids again. They, they'd, you know, boyhood dreams to go and win at Wembley. Uh, we couldn't get them off the pitch. They were on the pitch for about 45 minutes, an hour after the game. And then we had the, the cleaners at Wembley knocking on the, the door saying, look, fellas, you do have to leave the stadium at some stage tonight. Uh, they were just lapping it up. And it was wonderful to see these boys that work so hard and, and a wonderful, wonderful group of, of human beings um, enjoy themselves and, and get their rewards for all their hard work. Um, it was just a moment that will stick with me forever. Um, from a coaching perspective, you, you get about 30 minutes afterwards to enjoy it and you start thinking, oh my God, we've got some big clubs to play against next season. How are we going to bridge this gap? And uh, that starts to consume your thinking again. But, you know, we've earned the right to be there. We're going to enjoy it. We're going to give it our best shot. And um, the, the American owners are, are fully backing us. You know, they know that we're going to be the, the smallest club in that division by some way. But, you know, we believe that the, the psychology and the social side of our group can um, can bridge the financial gap in many respects and, and we have great belief in our, in our players to go and attack that challenge and Richard I suppose the last thing to say is just you know best of luck for next season I mean I'm, I'm sure every neutral in the country will be keeping an eye on the Wickham scores and, and kind of wishing you guys all the best oh, I appreciate that thanks fellas and great to speak to you today So that was our interview with Wickham assistant manager Richard Dobson, who talks us through what the FA describes as the biggest psychology programme in Europe. And Luke, it was run by a League Two club at the time. I know, it's absolutely crazy, isn't it? That of all the of all the clubs in England, the one that's committing to doing such an innovative and such an interesting thing was a club like Wickham. I suppose it took somebody like Richard with that kind of passion, you know, and that commitment to doing something like this. And I guess that level of single-mindedness that it takes to actually I think this is the right thing to do uh, and and we are going to see it through and that was I thought it was really evident in one of the one of the one of the quotes that he kind of came out with where he said oh actually I'd rather lose coaches 
than, than, than psychologists. You know, that, that's how dedicated he was to the success of the program. Uh, and, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. You know, I think there is a debate over how replicable something like that is if you don't have an individual that's, uh, you know, as committed to the program as Richard. You know, as we're talking across, you know, all age groups, you know, again, it was really interesting, I think, that he was saying there were psychologists on the pitch ready to ready to, to kind of greet players, you know, say seven or eight that just missed a, you know, missed a shot in a training session to kind of, you know, console them and talk them through, to talk them through, you know, what they were feeling, which I've got to say didn't happen in my Sunday league training. Well, there would have been a lot of psychological support required for, for one-on-ones that were missed with you, John, uh, I'm sure. But <laughs> yeah, no, I thought, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I mean, we talked about the fact that we interviewed Misha, uh, Misha Jervis before who was involved in that um, academy. And, and she really talked quite extensively about the fact that she genuinely thought there were performance advantages to be derived from kind of, you know, a, a good psychological program. And I suppose I'd never really entertain the idea that it might involve, as you described there, psychologists actually being on the pitch. I always thought it would be kind of something, you know, there was a training session and then a psychology session and, and then they were separate. It's amazing how intertwined everything was uh, across the whole kind of academy setup. And, and actually back to your point around how Richard, yeah, that was a very, you know, very interesting comment, wasn't it, about how he said, I'd rather lose coaches than psychologists. You can imagine that there's a lot of people who work in football for whom that kind of approach to psychology takes them well out of their comfort zone. I mean, I'm not just talking about the proper football men. I'm talking about, you know, coaches up and down who will probably be like, I'm not used to this. I don't know what this is. It's a bit scary. It's a bit touchy-feely. I, I don't know what I'm doing. So all credit to, you know, the guy at the top to say, yeah, this is what we're doing. Yeah, you know, I think hopefully some of that that scepticism that, that, that might surround sports psychology, uh, certainly within football from, you know, from the interviews that, that, that kind of we've conducted so far, hopefully some of that is being countered by just really, I think, clear evidence of of its impact so you know again richard talked about like, really eloquently about the the uh, the support that uh, they were able to provide to you know 15 year old jordan ibe right the way through to you know how how the the videos that the, the, the misha was was producing were um were helping first team players actually during lockdown yeah and i think another thing he said which was which is really interesting actually was you know when he sort of said look i've seen football chew up and spit out so many young kids and what he sort said was actually he thinks that academies have got a commitment to kind of developing these kids in terms of their all-round kind of emotional development as as humans I suppose and saying yeah it's all very well saying it's a successful academy and it produces good players and, and, and they get into the first team but actually it's about kind of making all of these people more psychologically resilient just to deal with life whatever it is they might be doing whether that's playing football or doing something else in the future and and that's kind of that's a really kind of refreshing thing to hear, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's, it's worth saying as well that there are some beacons of light elsewhere as well. I mean, you know, again, Richard talks about Mitchell Jarvis's programme at QPR. You know, on a previous podcast, we kind of touched on some of the work that's that's going on at, at Bill Bow, which is, I think, a really interesting example, actually, of how, of how psychological sport is helping players through to the first team. Yeah, John, and I suppose the, the last point really to make is you and I were both kind of quite taken aback at how more hadn't been made of this programme at, at Wickham. So, I mean, th- th- this academy kind of closed in 2012, which we, which we mentioned in the conversation. And obviously the, the commitment to kind of all the psychological stuff that was all put in place kind of before that just seems amazing 
that's got a decade later this isn't just an exemplar kind of model that has got loads and loads of coverage it's, got, it's kind of really nice that people like Misha and Richard were both kind of like grateful for people taking an interest and, and it kind of shows their humbleness in terms of the reasons they were committed to it weren't kind of personal glory and recognition it was that they just believed in the principles that they were trying to roll out yeah absolutely that's it for, for this week thanks very much for listening if you want to read a bit more about uh, the work that Richard and, and Misha are doing do visit the, the Beat the Press website um, or follow us on, on Twitter at Beat underscore press <laughs>